please invite uh, a welcome social to Alan Tudge to the podium. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you very much, Greg, for that introduction. And thanks very much, everybody, for coming along and um, participating in this lunch. And hopefully we can have a good discussion as, as well. I'm, uh, my, my, my topic today is, is really about child poverty is what I want to discuss. And I particularly want to do so in the context that it's almost 30 years to the day when Bob Hawke made that famous declaration that no child should live in poverty. And he said at the time that by 1990, no child should live in, in poverty. And my main point that I want to make is that in some respects, we've done well in terms of fulfilling Bob Hawke's aspiration that no child should live in poverty 30 years down the track, and in large part because of higher welfare payments and because of more social services. But nevertheless, we still have considerable problems in uh, in disadvantaged communities and amongst children. And I want to talk about those in a modern-day context of what we mean by poverty. And I make the suggestion that what many suggest being higher welfare payments and continued more social services won't actually address today's modern impoverishment, which is different to what Bob Hawke was talking about in 1987. Now, I want to start, if we could, by maybe describing what we mean by, by poverty. And, and different people have different definitions of that. And in some respects, there's no perfect single definition of poverty. The most commonly cited definition, and which is used by the OECD and um, many of the welfare agencies, including ACOS, use this definition, is that a person is in poverty when their disposable income is less than 50% of that of the median household income. And if you take that measure, there's about 3 million Australians who live in poverty, about 770,000 children, which is almost one in five children. And in fact, that rate has increased over the last decade. But that measure is in part not a useful measure. It's good at describing the fact that there is welfare, that there is income inequality, but it doesn't actually say anything about absolute levels of income. And in fact, as long as there's any wealth inequality, the measure would say that there was poverty, even if someone was well off in absolute terms. And moreover, it would suggest that if we lowered uh, the incomes of the middle class, we would reduce the poverty level because the median income would drop. Now, plainly, that's, that's ridiculous. So in some respects, yes, it's a, it's a definition which we use, but it's a less useful definition in my view. Absolute poverty or absolute deprivation, I think, is a more useful measure for assessing the well-being of very poor Australians. And that is, can people afford the basics? Can people afford to purchase food, clothing, shelter, their education for themselves and their children? And I believe that this is how most Australians would conceptualise the term poverty and um, I believe that when Bob Hawke was perhaps referring to it, that's what he was thinking about back in 1987 um, when he was making those comments. And on this measure, I think we are doing better in large part because of the approach to impoverishment over the last 30 years. And that approach has largely been higher welfare payments and more social services, a two-pronged approach. And indeed, the parliamentary library, the researchers there, they say that 
over the last 30 years as a result of those two um, things, we've more or less ameliorated the worst effects of poverty for most Australians. And indeed, they say that few Australians today live in absolute poverty. In some respects, which I think should be very proud of that fact. It's not surprising, really, when you examine um, the way that welfare payments have increased over the last 30 years. And I'll give you a couple of examples. A couple on an unemployment benefit with two or three children today would receive about 40% more in real terms in welfare payments than they did 30 years ago. About 40% more in real terms, you know, above the cost of living than they did 30 years ago. That person, an unemployed couple with three kids in absolutes, uh, welfare payments level would receive, you know, unemployed couple, three kids would receive in the vicinity of $48,000 in welfare payments a year, which to put into a, you know, that's the equivalent of about a $60,000 salary. I'm not sort of saying that's a, a lot of money, but nor is it um, an amount which means that one should not be able to afford the basics um, of food, of clothing, of shelter and of other things. A single parent on an unemployment benefit with one, one or two children today receives between about 34 and 67% more in real terms, in welfare payments, than they did 30-odd years ago. As I said, these aren't a lot of money. I don't pretend that it is, but it is a good safety net to be able to afford the basics. And those increases in welfare payments that I was describing have been accompanied by a significant increases in the number of social services over those decades as well. So today, as you'd be aware, there are programs and services for a vast array of social problems, for homelessness, for activities after school, for breakfast programs, domestic violence initiatives, mental health initiatives, youth programs, and the list can go on. In the Aboriginal communities, um, the extent of the service growth, I believe, has reached close to saturation levels. Um, the Auditor General found a couple of years ago in assessing this that there is now, in many of the Aboriginal communities, as I know Josephine Cashman and, and Sean Gordon will know better than anybody, um, is about, about one program for every five residents. One program for every five residents. So they did an analysis of Wilcannia here in western New South Wales. There was 102 funded programs in that town from 18 different state and territory federal agencies with a further 17 proposed. And the Indigenous population was 474. Now, in other areas, there's a similar array of services. They're, they're not always coordinated. Some are more useful than others. I'm not suggesting that, that the services are, are overall poor. The services have been a, a contributor. Um, but all I'm saying is that it's the combination of the welfare increases plus the services increases, which I think have got to that level where today, largely, not entirely, that absolute poverty has been eliminated to the extent that no one need to go hungry as a result of lack of, of basic income and lack of basic services um, which are available. However, while absolute poverty is rarer today, impoverishment still exists in, in many pockets. Again, I'll refer, refer back to Indigenous communities where we often see this acutely. 
but it's apparent in many other pockets of Australia, including in the suburbs of our largest cities. And here it's not a complete lack of income that is always the problem, but it's a general dysfunction that means that children's potential is not able to be maximised. I think the most acute and the most tragic example of this um, is fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, which in some places affects up to a quarter of babies which have been born, effectively been born um, functionally impaired because of alcohol abuse of, of, of the mother while, while pregnant. We know over, over 225,000 children suffer from abuse or neglect. Um, thousands of young Australians go through the education system, effectively functionally literate today. I've literally met teenagers who sign their name with an X. They don't, they don't know how to write their name. Um, we have one in eight children grow up in a, in a jobless household. And to me, this is the, the real impoverishments which exists today amongst children and comes and exists despite there being a considerable increase in welfare payments and despite there being a considerable increase in social services and despite an economy which has grown for 25 years straight. Noel Pearson, who I know is a great friend of this organisation and um, has spoken here in the past, a former boss of mine um, and a, an intellectual giant, he frequently notes that over the last 30 or 40 years we've seen formal racism end and we've seen a huge increase in the money invested in the remote communities, yet despite that the social fabric has declined. Um, he said the dysfunction which characterises many of the remote communities today was not there in the 60s and 70s. You know, children went to school then, the men had jobs then, um, and the respect for elders then was stronger. But it's not, he talks about that in an Indigenous context, but it's not an Indigenous issue, in my view. This is a, is a human issue. Um, it's just that we see those issues most acutely in those Indigenous communities, and therefore, in some respects, I believe they actually provide lessons for the rest of Australia in terms of how we think about child impoverishment um, more broadly. And in some respects, this comes to my, my main point, that few would suggest that increasing the level of welfare payments and significantly increasing the number of services in those remote locations will improve the circumstances of children in those areas. We've had a significant increase in payments. We've got services which are close to one service for every five people in those locations. Um, and I think few would suggest that just continuing down that path is going to make a real difference. In some respects, we've got test cases of this too, because we have royalties payments which are made frequently. And you see the royalties payments made, which are almost the equivalent of a big boost in income support payments for a certain period of time. But they don't tend to have a sustainable difference on those, on those communities. Again, I think that is the same across Australia. As I say, we've done well in alleviating absolute poverty through those two measures, through increasing welfare payments, through increasing social services. But I don't think this formula provides, will provide the step change improvement to addressing the modern impoverishment um, over the next 30 years. And in some respects, my concern is that many in the social services sector, and in some respects, many even in the business community, believe that an increase in those welfare payments remains the primary solution to modern impoverishment. And further, by focusing 
on that. They spend less time thinking more deeply about um, what I would call the pathways to poverty and the underlying causes of modern-day impoverishment, which I think are far more complex and require much more sophisticated analysis, which, which this organisation, the Centre for Independent Studies, and particularly the people uh, like the late Helen Hughes and Peter Saunders have done for many, many years. So how should we, how should we think about it, um, about modern-day impoverishment? I, I um, have been taken by a framework by the centre called the um, Centre for Social Justice, which is a United Kingdom centre. And they refer to five pathways to poverty and believe that addressing these pathways is actually the best way of addressing modern impoverishment and particularly for children. And while they have done their analysis in a UK context, to me it makes sense and I believe holds for an Australian context. And I believe that um, it is a useful framework for thinking about it. And I want to very briefly outline those five pathways and, and touch on in the time available at least some of the things which, which we're doing. It's, it's too big a topic to go into depth in these, but let me briefly touch on, on some of these things. And the first one that the Centre for Social Justice outlines, which I think is true here, is family breakdown. They note that the family is where the vast majority of us learn the fundamental skills for life, physically, emotionally and socially. It is the context from which the rest of life flows, which I think is right. My view is wherever there are strong families, regardless of the makeup, there are typically strong, capable children. It almost goes without saying that where you have strong families, you don't have children go hungry. Um, but unfortunately, over the past few decades, family breakdown and family dysfunction has become more common, and particularly in the least advantageous sections of society. And it's not just happening here, but we see that in other Western economies as well. I think one of the more remarkable changes in, of our society in the last 30 or 40 years is the growth in sole parent families, for example. In the mid-1970s, it was about 9.2% of kids who were growing up in sole parent families. Um, today, it's almost double that figure, quite a stark change in a relatively short amount of time. I make, I make no judgment on any of those families. I'm, I'm one of those statistics who grew up in a sole parent family, but a breakdown of family structure does contribute to impoverishment um, for many. As I say, uh, you, you don't tend to have children go hungry when there is a strong family which surrounds that child. The second pathway is worklessness a topic which I've been talking about for many, many years. The CIS, led previously by, uh, by Peter Saunders, has been talking about for possibly decades, um, Greg. Um, we know that work is the most effective route out of poverty, both in absolute and relative terms. If we look at, from a relative poverty perspective, which is how ACOS, the OECD, look at it, as I was talking about earlier, we find that 62% of unemployed people are in their definition of poverty, whereas only about 4% of full-time workers fit that description. Um, of course, by working, people's capabilities are strengthened, and also the reverse is true. Long-term welfare dependence, in my view, is a, is, a, is a poison on individual. It reduces people's capabilities, it reduces people's confidence. And um, 
it's, it's commonly said and it's absolutely true that the best form of welfare is a job. And a very large part of, of the government's agenda um, is the creation of more um, job opportunities, obviously by growing the economy and so many of our measures are geared towards that. But also, at the same time as creating those opportunities, we've got to eliminate wherever we humanly can those impediments for people to be able to take the work when it is available. And that's been a large part of the work which myself and Christian Porter and Michaelia Cash have been doing in terms of our welfare reform agenda, which is trying to encourage people at every step of the way um, to take the work opportunities when they are available, even if it's not the most perfect job in the first instance, because any job is better than being on welfare for any length of time. It's why we've instituted, um, led by Christian Porter, the um, priority investment approach modelled on what New Zealand has done, which is trying to tap into the best ideas from the private sector, from the community sector, to help get people off welfare and into work. And New Zealand has been very successful at that and we hope that we can copy um, what they have done. This is a huge task. I'm not going to dwell on this. I've spoken at length about this in the past. The third pathway, um, again, a very well-known one, is drug and alcohol dependence, something, again, which has got worse in the last few decades. I'll use the Indigenous examples again where you see it acutely there where you didn't 30 years ago and today it um, can be the, uh, one of the fundamental impediments to be able to see functional societies. But again, this is seen across different aspects of society. And we know that addiction to drugs and alcohol, it remains a, a shocking feature of life in many disadvantaged communities, across all communities indeed. Um, it shreds the fabric of our society and it makes it so difficult for children to be able to grow up and have um, capability and functional lives. Now, there's no easy solution to this. I don't pretend there is. I don't know if anybody has um, the overall answer to this problem, but uh, we are doing a lot of work, obviously, on the supply side, particularly in relation to drugs, but we've also got to do work on the demand side, uh, which I've been doing and leading on things such as this cashless welfare card, which at least provides a, a mechanism to ensure that welfare dollars aren't going towards alcohol and drugs. Um, we're going to be introducing drug testing for welfare recipients, at least in some trials, to again try to identify those pockets and people which may have dependencies, which may be affecting their lives and their ability to get work, and to be able to um, hopefully help them get off those drugs. Fourthly, very briefly, is education failure. I don't know, need to go into this. Thousands of people, unfortunately, go through 10 years of schooling and remain functionally illiterate, and I mentioned that previously. And finally, the final pathway which the Centre for Social Justice mentions is indebtedness and, and lack of financial capability. Um, th this is an important one in my view. It's, if one is not in control of their finances, it's very difficult to be in control of one's life. Um, it's difficult to get a good sense of, of this problem and whether or not the problem has exacerbated over the last 30 years or so. Um, from the data that is available, we know that 30% um, of low-income households had household debt three or four times the household disposable income, which is up by about 50% compared to a decade ago. Um, the Social Policy Research Centre survey from a few years ago found that almost one in five people don't have $500 in savings. 
for an emergency situation. Um, we find that um, a very significant number of people, again about one in five people who are on welfare payments, say they have difficulty in understanding financial matters. Now we, we spend at the Commonwealth level about $100 million a year on financial capability and financial assistance, but I don't think we've quite got the formula right there and I think we can do better in that space. And just one illustration of this is that of the people who seek emergency relief, which means that you've already gone through your welfare payments, you may have got an advance in your welfare payments, you've had that, and you're going to maybe St Vincent or Stalvos or someone and getting some emergency relief cash, only about 4% of such people are connected into financial management assistance at that time, when I would have thought that would be a, a, a clearer place where somebody might need some assistance um, to be able to do that. So as I say, I think we need to do better in this space, acknowledging that some people have very basic capability and therefore require probably quite intense income management, uh, while others would benefit from financial management assistance to be on a much um, better footing. Now, I've danced across in some respects those, those five areas and just given the time frame. Um, and obviously each, each uh, pathway, as I've called them here, we could have a whole discussion in relation to. But as I said, my overall point of this discussion is to say that modern impoverishment is far more complex, I think, today than it was maybe 30 years ago when we're largely talking about absolute poverty and the ability for people to afford the absolute essential basics. And therefore it requires a more sophisticated um, and deeper thinking. Um, I'll just finish by really saying that my, my intent here uh, wasn't to provide an overall solution to modern impoverishment. I think that's an impossible task for one short presentation. Um, we could have many presentations on it, but it hopefully provides a, an alternative way of at least of thinking about how we should be thinking about modern impoverishment today, different to how maybe Bob Hawke was thinking about it 30 years ago. And I would like to see more people in the business community, in the social services community, and think tanks such as the CIS continue to do work on those issues as much as they might call um, for higher welfare payments. It is, I think, in, entrenched disadvantage or impoverishment, the toughest overall challenge in Australia, um, but arguably the most important to address. I don't think we can solve it by doubling the number of services once again. I don't think we can solve it by having another step increase in welfare payments. Rather, we need to collectively put our minds to the underlying factors which have changed since Hawke's day and be clear-eyed in terms of how we tackle them. Thank you very much, Greg. I'll leave it there, but I'm happy to open that up um, for discussion and take any questions or observations on this. Thank you.